Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Today on the show, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, both voodoo and a little bit later uh, in the show, Santeria as well. Um, you could argue that they are cousins of one another, particularly in, in the world of what we call syncretism in religion, uh, religions that kind of cross-pollinate uh, and borrow from one another. Uh, we'll tell you a lot about this. We've got terrific guests uh, for you. In studio with me is uh, Professor Leslie Demangle, uh, Professor of Religious Studies and International Studies at Trinity here in Hartford, author of Faces of the Gods, Voodoo and Roman Catholicism in Haiti. Uh, joining us by Skype uh, is Selmia uh, Haas, a writer, executive director, and founder of Headwaters slash Delta Interfaith, as well as being a voodoo priestess uh, or mambo. You'll hear me address her as mambo uh, during the show. Um, I'm going to begin by just talking about how um, a part, anyway, of the strictly Christian world processes this question of how to think and talk uh, about this religious tradition of voodoo. Uh, you're going to hear a guy who actually at one point was appointed by now President Trump uh, as uh, the liaison for Christian policy during his 2016 campaign. His name is Frank Medea of Touch, uh, Amadea, excuse me, Amadea of Touch Heaven Ministries. Uh, you're going to hear a clip uh, of him talking uh, about Haiti. Uh, in 2011 after that devastating earthquake, uh, and you'll hear him uh, talk about what he thinks uh, is part of the problem. What do you what do you foresee uh, happening here in Haiti, and uh, what has God spoken to your heart? The redemption of the country has to be in the fathering of the country. It's a lack of a fathering spirit here. Amen. To Amen. The curse of voodoo that has taken away the fathering of this land. Yeah. Um, at other times, this same man has talked about um, how his uh, vision of aid to Haiti, even in a dire situation like that, uh, would be conditional uh, on a change in that religion. He says there's absolutely a heightened spiritual conflict between Christian Christianity and voodoo since the quake. We would give food to the needy in the short term, but if they refuse to give up voodoo, I'm not sure we would continue to support them in the long term because we wouldn't want to perpetuate that practice. I just want to say that's very, very similar to the attitude uh, of the Protestant church in Ireland towards Catholics during the famine. Uh, they would be fed. It was called taking soup. They would be fed if they would renounce Catholicism and join a different faith. So religious bullying didn't start uh, just yesterday. It's been around for a while. But um, Leslie Demong, it's got to be it's a strange thing to hear that. And to hear a pastor in that way set these two faiths at odds with one another as enemies, particularly because, I mean, we use that word syncretism at the beginning of the show. Voodoo is not a stranger to Christianity. Quite the opposite, right? No, that's correct. Um, voodoo actually is uh, the word voodoo, V-O-D-O-U. 
uh, comes from Benin in Africa, and the word actually means spirit. That's all it means. Uh, but the attitude of the, of the pastor uh, was, uh, in fact, based on a story that was told uh, during the time of the uh, independence of Haiti when the slaves revolted uh, against uh, white domination. And according to the story, uh, the blacks just got together one night, and then they sacrificed a pig, then they shared the blood in a cup, and then they vowed not to tell the secrets of this revolution. And so um, the, it's always been interpreted that, that by that particular ritual that uh, Haitians had sold their um, souls to the devil. And so the whole notion of being a father, of fathering Haitians, has to do with the fact that uh, evangelical pastors or missionaries have to come to Haiti to change people's beliefs in voodoo and to uh, make uh, part, uh, Christians out of them. And that's where that comes from. But actually, the story that's told about the sacrifice is probably not true. It was just something that was part of Haitian folklore. Well, I think also, I mean, just to get to the religious studies part of it, uh, this is my understanding of voodoo uh, is that it is um, a religion that did represent from kind of a melding uh, of the religions brought over from West Africa by slaves from what's now Benin or Togo or Nigeria um, or Ghana to the Caribbean, to the New World, uh, and then fused with Christian religious practices that they encountered there. No, that's correct. Uh, so that when the missionaries arrived in full force in the 17th century, uh, they came and tried to convert the slaves to Christianity by that time, all of the slaves that had come from different parts of Africa had actually um, synchronized their religions together. And when the missionaries arrived, well, the Catholicism was just simply included in Vodou theology. So that today what Vodou is, it's an intermixture of both Catholicism and Vodou at the same time. And it was done in a very clever way because, in fact, the Catholic saints of the church turn out to be Vodou spirits. Yeah, so I, I think it's a good point to uh, which to bring in uh, Somia Haas. Um, Mambo, as we talk about um, those religious spirits, we have to explain a little bit about Lua. Is that how you say it? I, I have to work on my pronunciations here. <laughs> Lua. Yeah. So <clears throat> um, I, I just want to stress that I am able to represent New World voodoo. Voodoo in Benin is different. Mm -hmm. I travel to Benin. And I'm working towards my initiation there, but I'm still very, very much a novice. And there are certainly differences in practices among all voodoo communities, as you find with any religious faith. So if, for example, I, I use Christianity sort of as a metaphor and an analogy, because it's something most listeners will be familiar with. So trying to sum up Christianity is difficult and impossible. And trying to sum up voodoo is similarly difficult mm -hmm. and impossible. But there certainly are some core beliefs and some similarities that we can talk about. So the Lua are the spirits. And in New World Voodoo, they're not quite considered gods. But it sort of depends. That's a gloss with translation, with cultural translation. So in my community in New Orleans, we, you know, we consider them spirits. And part of the core beliefs of, I think, any voodoo uh, community is that there are two worlds that overlap. There is the world, uh, the common world that we, you know, everyone sees, the world sort of that we live in, what we could call objective reality. And then there is the world of the spirits. And those worlds are laid over each other, and the world of the spirits 
imbues itself into our world. So part of becoming a Buddha practitioner, whether one is a, a practitioner, an initiate, or a priest or priestess, is cultivating relationships with these loa. And there are many, many, many loa. Often what you hear referred to as a loa, say, um, I think uh, the Gede, who are well known and unfortunately much represented and misrepresented in pop culture, um, the Gede are they you know depicted as as skeletal you know often wearing a top hat smoking a cigar, so there isn't a Gede when we mm. say Gede we are speaking of a family of spirits so you could think of Gede as like a last name, and then each you know each community locality would have different Gede that they pay homage to. Right, and so some of these we should say that some of these Loire. Uh, that I've seen anyway, are very anthropomorphic in, in nature and in depiction. Um, and, and so when we see pictures of uh, Baron Samedi or, um, uh, or or somebody like Papa Legba, uh, it mm-hmm. looks very much like a person dresses like a person. It's not some wisp floating in the yes. air. Um, and, and my sense of, say, uh, a loi like Papa Lamdi is that, back to Professor Demong's point, um, that, pers- that entity would have some kind of kinship with saints that um, that the early voodoo practitioners in the New World had encountered, right? There's a, people say maybe he's a little bit of St. Peter plus Lazarus plus, plus something else. Yes, um, absolutely. And, um, you know, today we definitely see that, you know, Catholic imagery is used very, you know, very often. Um, I think most of the statues that I have on my altar, um, you know, my personal altars, you know, come from a, a Catholic source. Um, but again, it's it's tricky because every community is a little different. So one community, you know, may see their Ogu. Ogu is the the warrior, you know, one of the warrior spirits. Um, you know, sometimes it's Saint George. Um, sometimes it's another saint because again, there are many, you know, there are many Ogu. Right. Um, but you know that imagery is powerful, and I think that. Most, you know, all religions are a Venn diagram. Um, we can't live in cultures alongside each other. How, however, unfortunately and painfully, we have come in contact with a particular culture. And I think, you know, voodoo is is has endured for a very, very long time, um, you know, back into prehistory as far as we can tell. And it changes, you know, voodoo in Benin is changing um, as any religion changes. And I think one of the difficult, I'm sorry, I hope you can't hear my dogs. There's a Loire talking to you Um, in the background, I think. um, Yeah, I I apologize. Um, So, you know, the, I think that coming from, you know, for lack of a better term, a Western perspective, we have to be really careful not to fix certain traditions in antiquity mm, right. um, and to think of them as static and mm. unchanging. You know, there's certainly elements that remain, but everything is evolving, everything is changing, and everything adapts. I, I think this leads us very well to uh, so Prof- Professor Demong. Um, some of this evolution, you can see pretty early in the history of the New World, uh, Louis XIV uh, passes the, the Code Noir uh, in the 17th century. Explain what that is. Well, the Code Noir is, uh, occurred in uh, 1685, and this, this was um, uh, a law that was passed by the French Parliament 
that uh, missionaries should be sent to, to Haiti in order to be able, and also to Louisiana, by the way, because Louisiana was also a French colony. So it was to be sent to all the colonies, all the French colonies, to uh, convert the slaves to Christianity. Um, and that's what the Code Noir uh, is about. Right. And so, and there's, there's I, I sense anyway, maybe I'm, I'm projecting too much here, but I sense nervousness already in the Code Noir, that there's kind of a sense that there's an indigenous culture that's already bumping up against Catholicism, that maybe this Venn diagram uh, that the Mambo is talking about uh, is already beginning. Those circles are starting to touch a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, because already there were some missionaries that had been there before, and therefore there had been this intermixture of what you call the syncretism between, that had already started. Mm-hmm. So in a way, this was a way of clearing this up so that the slaves then uh, would would become pure Christians, as they were, and pure Catholics, and so the law was quite uh, uh, quite strict, uh, and it stated simply that a slave, uh, uh, an African who came as a slave into the Caribbean, into any of the French colonies, could not work on the plantations until they had spent eight days. Uh, doing catechism in the church, and it was after they had uh, been baptized in the church that they could be in, then become uh, Catholics. But um, I want to go back to something that was said earlier about um, about the saints. Um, it is true that the saints are associated with um, uh, with Catholic um, saints, but but uh, rather that the Lois are associated with Catholic saints. But there is something else to consider also, is that um, the, each one of the Lois is really a, a family of Lois, and it's a series of manifestations, and therefore every Lois has different personalities, different manifestations, and I refer to those as different faces, and each one of the faces represents a different character and a different characteristic of this particular one Lois. So when you say gay day, you're talking about a whole set of what we might refer to as gay day Vs. So there are a whole set of them that are associated with different kinds of functions and different persona. In a way, you find that in a lot of religions. I mean, look at Hinduism. You could also see in Hinduism, sometimes the gods have two faces. There is only one side, mm-hmm. and then you also have the other side. And I, to some extent, that even exists in Christianity because you have God one in three. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other two are really, the, all three of them are faces of the same principle. You know, uh, Mumbo, one thing that uh, I encounter a little bit in just trying to learn about this is that uh, people who are involved in voodoo will say, yeah, it's a religion. It's also a way of life, right? It's also a culture yes. um, that, it, that in a way, for, for some of us who practice a religion mainly on Sundays and in a very specific place that's not our house, um, we may have a, an, a wrong idea about the degree to which voodoo, maybe with its emphasis on solving actual problems in life at times, is pretty much a 24-7 thing. Do I, do I have that right? Yes, and I think that you know it comes down very much to you know difficulties with with terminology and the way that terminology gets into our heads and then shapes our view of reality. Um, again, you know, for lack of a, a better term, I say you know Western. Um, you know, the the term religion is objectionable to people of very of different faiths. I mean, birth tradition is Hindu, and you find a lot of pushback you know, in the Hindu community about the term religion, because that is a term that came out of an Abrahamic understanding of human culture. 
And so to take that, uh, you know, Abrahamic idea and then try to overlay that terminology onto these very diverse cultures with their own understanding of reality is going to lead to trouble down the line. And I think very much in academia, there is, a, you know, always everything, again, you know, things are always changing and evolving, um, that there is a, a movement towards thinking very critically about that term religion, what is included, what is not included, and why. Why do we arbitrarily decide something is culture but not religion? What, what's the line there? Right. So as far as we understand religion, um, yes, voodoo is very much a religion. But often that pushback of practitioners saying, no, this is not a religion, this is a way of life, is a pushback, uh, you know, against religion as a term that has boundaries. Right. And, and I think also, I don't know, uh, Professor DeMong, as I try to learn about it, it also it reminds me a little bit of Shintoism in the sense that in, in Japanese Shintoism, there's um, a real sense of engagement with spirits. Uh, you know, you clap uh, in order to get their attention at a shrine. You back away from that shrine so that when you're done so that you don't turn your back to them and, and offend them. And one of my senses, uh, Professor DeMong, of the Lua is that this is not a passive relationship between believer uh, and, and, and intermediary. Um, spiritual intermediary. You don't just sit there and pray to the Loa, right? You no, have more of an engagement. No, with no, them. That's correct, because the Loa, in fact, is, is serves as a protector. Uh, it's the one that watches uh, over somebody's life. And uh, there are all sorts of things that people do to please the Loa, but also to establish a, a very personal, intimate kind of relationship with the spirit. And um, um, religion, I mean, voodoo is, in, in a sense, a way of life. There's no question about that. Uh, and um, because there are so many things that are associated with what you do if you're going to be a voodooist. You're going to eat certain meals at uh, certain days. You're going to wear certain colors or not wear certain colors on certain days. There are things that you do that have to be associated with a particular loa who is your protector loa. And each person in the temple or no hunfo could have uh, different loas that they, that they themselves feel very close to. So it is a way of life. There is no question about that. Mambo, I have to ask. You say you uh, your your birth religion uh, is Hindu. Uh, how yes. did you get to where you are now? What was that path? <laughs> um, well, it doesn't. You know, it wasn't really a linear experience. So, unfortunately, it doesn't make a great story. But I will try. Um, my mother is my father is from India, and my mother is Caribbean. So, although I was raised, I was born and raised in the Midwest in Minnesota. And although my mother's family, as far as I know, did not practice any, you did not sort of deliberately practice any Afro-Caribbean traditions, it was, there was kind of an awareness there. Um, my mother is not from the part of the Caribbean near Haiti, so the word voodoo was not something I had really heard, but there was kind of a familiarity with Caribbean culture and Caribbean spiritual practices. Um, and also, you know, growing up as a Hindu in the Midwest in the 1970s was very trying at times. My parents started one of the first yoga and meditation studios in the Twin Cities. And back then, uh, yoga meditation was like devil worship. People were very afraid of it. And so I had to learn at a young age to, first of all, think critically and to engage with, you know, the public, often with adults, about my faith tradition. 
Because of this, I'm very sensitive to what I absorb in pop culture um, or even in journalism about a faith or a practice that is not familiar to me. So I was vaguely aware of voodoo and vaguely aware that it probably wasn't being accurately represented. And then about uh, less than a year after Katrina, I kind of randomly ended up in New Orleans as a tourist. And like most Americans, you know, my encounter with Katrina was through the television. I had donated some money and, and honestly kind of forgotten about it. And I was very struck um, by the situation for the people of New Orleans. And I spent a lot of time just kind of walking and, and talking with people. And voodoo came up a few times and I was very curious. So I bought a book and the author, Sally Ann Glassman, who ended up becoming my mentor and initiator later on, I read her book. Um, I was enthralled and very curious. And I looked online at other books about voodoo, and I realized I knew enough to know that I didn't know which books were accurately representing voodoo and which were sensationalized. So I contacted Sally Ann and I said, by email, I said, hey, I read your book and I want more. I don't know what to do next. So she recommended some books and we struck up a correspondence by email. She encouraged me to come to New Orleans to attend some ceremonies. I did, and something something really lit up in me at that first ceremony. Some of it is very difficult to explain. It's, it's like trying to explain falling in love. <laughs> but some of it I can talk about in terms of what I saw in that ceremony. First of all, it was very level. Um, seeing women being prominent in the ceremony was extraordinary for me. And seeing that there is a, there's definitely people who are, you know, kind of running the ceremony. But it's not like other faith traditions, not like Hinduism, you know, not like the Christianity I'm familiar with, where there's like a priest who's sort of elevated, like physically and literally, mm -hmm. um, and then people who are sort of taking part but are in more passive role. Like the ceremony was, everyone was the ceremony. And everyone I can see, yeah, that, that democratic quality obviously has some appeal. Hey, I'm getting a signal, Amambo, from the producer that I've got to get to a break here. Uh, you're, you've been hearing uh, Somia Haas, uh, writer, executive director, and founder of Headwaters Delta Interfaith, also a voodoo priestess, hence my address to her as Mambo. Uh, we're going to take a break. break. Uh, thanks very much for this part of the conversation. I'll be back with more Professor Demangla. And since uh, Mambo has pointed us in the direction of New Orleans, we will go there and talk about the very specific New Orleansian version of voodoo. All right, we're back. Uh, we're talking about voodoo and a little bit later about Santeria as well. In studio with me is Professor Leslie DeMong, uh, who is a professor of religious studies and international studies at Trinity College in Hartford, uh, author of Faces of the Gods, Voodoo and Roman Catholicism in Haiti. Joining us now also is Cody Roberts, uh, assistant professor in history at Louisiana State University and the author of Voodoo and Power, the Politics of Religion in New Orleans, 1881 to 1940. But, um, but Professor DeMong, to get us to New Orleans, I think we have to finish up our conversation uh, about Haiti and colonialism. So uh, we said that in the 17th century, Louis XIV just says, uh-uh, no, everybody's going to be Catholic, so just forget about all this other stuff. And we know how well that worked. Like many kings who tried to command the tide, uh, he couldn't stop the tide of people's belief. So by the 18th century, voodoo is an incredibly uh, potent force in Haiti, leading to revolt. 
Yes, that, that's uh, precisely what happened. And Voodoo had a very important role to play in, in the um, War of Independence and the revolution that began in 1791 and ended up with uh, Haiti's independence in 1804. So there was... Um, uh, the, the by the 19th century, uh, obviously, the religion had become a very important uh, uh, aspect of Haitian culture. But it really took root, particularly in after the, the um, 1804, after Haiti's independence, because after the independence, Haiti had no contact, or virtually no contact with the outside. And the reason is because uh, other countries thought that uh, blacks could not rule themselves and therefore, for about 55 to 56 years, uh, Haiti had virtually very little contact with the outside, and the contact actually did not take place until 1860. But many of the priests, the Catholic priests who were there um, in, the, uh, in the colony and in the country uh, in, the 19th, in the 18th century, uh, with the war, most of them were white priests, and they left uh, the country. And during those 56 years, the churches were left without priests, and a lot of the actually voodoo priests were the ones who um, did the masses and, and uh, took care of the churches and the congregations. So that uh, period of 56 years is a period that was very important in history and development of the religion uh, and brought about then this uh, interconnectedness, this closeness between Roman Catholicism and uh, this syncretism, as we refer to it, between Roman Catholicism and Vaudoux. So, uh, Cody, uh, we have this kind of almost Haitian diaspora, but one of the places the diaspora really goes, uh, particularly after the revolt, is to New Orleans. And so what happens there? It's not just a complete, uh, perfect transfer uh, of Haitian voodoo to New Orleans, right? New Orleans uh, exerts its own specific pull. So, so do you get essentially a, a different variant of the religion there? Yeah, voodoo in New Orleans looks really different than what you would read about if you were studying Haiti. The historical context, by the time you get to the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, has kind of infused voodoo in New Orleans. So all of the kind of racial and gender and economic politics of southern Louisiana become really influential in voodoo. And by the time you get to the early 20th century, whereas the lower, the spirits that you that are so familiar to Haitian voodoo, um, by the time you get to the early 20th century, they're almost invisible in New Orleans. Um, whereas people tend to talk about for a long time, I think the literature's gotten a little better recently, but for a long time when people talked about the spirits in Haiti, they talked about uh, the Catholic saints as kind of stand-ins, as a mask or the West African Loa. But in New Orleans, you get a much more complete fusion where people who are raised Catholic, raised Christian, uh, they begin to think of the Loa as the saints, and they become one thing. And they stop talking about the West African deities at all, largely because in Jim Crow, Louisiana, everything African is bad. Everything black is bad. And so even though a lot of these people are of African descent, a lot of them are African-American, they buy into those same notions. And so the, you see uh, uh, largely a, a dissipation of the kind of Africanness and the Haitianness of voodoo, and you get a much more American variant here in New Orleans. Um, 
every religious movement needs its version of St. Paul, uh, somebody to uh, communicate it to a, a much wider audience. Uh, Cody, I sense that in New Orleans, one possible candidate for St. Paul is a woman, uh, a person named Marie Laveau. Tell us about Marie Laveau. Marie Laveau is probably the most famous voodoo priestess in New Orleans history. Uh, she's active in the uh, 19th century. She dies in 1881, um, and she becomes kind of a myth and a legend after her death with people writing about how powerful she was, uh, kind of reading her racial and cultural identity as an Afro-Creole, a black person of uh, French uh, language descent, French uh, education, uh, and reading that identity onto voodoo. And so voodoo uh, becomes kind of an Afro-Creole cultural uh, uh, phenomenon because people associated with the population that had been here before, which is largely French-speaking, uh, by, by before I mean before the uh, Louisiana Purchase, before Louisiana becomes American. Um, and Marie Laveau becomes the living embodiment of that um, as this uh, – influential mover and shaker in the city as uh, someone who is looked at as kind of the face of power and the face of voodoo in this very particularly Afro-Creole aesthetic. Um, Professor DeMongo, I'm going to ask you a question to which there may be no good answer. But, you know, as we're describing this progress and particularly the progress of voodoo into New Orleans and because uh, I think because religion is culture and culture is language and these things are often, you know, all intermingled. And because, in fact, um, uh, uh, voodoo is already uh, in a Creole tongue, so it it's naturally adapts to New Orleans quite well, and, and including to white adherents, uh, not just black adherents. We're describing what is ordinarily the progress of a, of a religion from a, a an obscure, marginalized sect to more of a mainstream practice. And if we look at some of the other 19th century li- religious movements in in America, you can start with the Mormons, right? They're this they're this completely denigrated, ostracized group of people, and now they run for president. Um, that didn't happen with voodoo. Uh, in other words, voodoo never um, was assimilated at the same level. Is there a theory about why that would be the case? Yeah, because voodoo is uh, essentially more of a sort of a sectarian kind of organization. Um, and by that, I mean that a sect is an organization that's completely autonomous. It's not like a cell that only functions um, uh, locally. And so the religion, uh, Vodou as a faith, is really divided into various kinds of cells, and these cells are local. And um, there is no Vatican, there is no uh, organization that's international or national that controls uh, its dogmas and its rituals. Um, the different kinds of rituals and dogmas are just simply um, performed or d- done in, uh, in, in localities, and they develop quite independently of each other. And, and so the nature of the religion is completely different, and it's organized in a different way. In Haiti, um, about a several years ago, maybe three or four years ago, there was an attempt to establish a, an organization that would be there for a national or international organization. And a pope was actually elected by um, um, a group of community or a group of, uh, of uh, voodoo priests. Uh, but that really never worked because that really is not the nature of the religion at all. Nothing ever came out of that. 
Um, and, and Cody, I mean, it seems to me that New Orleans, as usual, is full of paradoxes this way. Uh, on the one hand, maybe it's the place where uh, voodoo uh, establishes itself within at least some white adherence. And as you say, there's a pretty smooth blend in some ways of Catholic practices and maybe even an erasure of some of the West African names. Um, on the other hand, New Orleans is, you know, as you say, part of a Jim Crow culture or reconstruction culture where black things are not black culture or black practices are not exalted in any way. So I don't know. Can you describe I mean, there's there seems to be a way in which voodoo found a place in New Orleans, including among white adherents who are still Southerners who still had some of those same kind of Jim Crow attitudes. How, how is all of that possible? I, I agree with uh, Leslie that uh, that a lot of this has to do with the kind of hierarchy and structure or a lack thereof in voodoo because you don't have uh, kind of central authority telling you what it means to belong to the religion, telling you what the religion has to be, then it's very malleable and it can become whatever adherents need it to be. And in New Orleans, uh, I make an argument in my book that uh, what unites voodoo practitioners in New Orleans isn't necessarily a racial heritage or uh, a lineage back to Africa or Haiti. What unites them is this desire for power. And usually what you have are folks who feel like they're on the wrong side of a power imbalance, a racial power imbalance, a gender power imbalance, an economic power imbalance. And these people go to voodoo to kind of make up for that disadvantage. And so it attracts everyone in the city who feels like they're in their position. Sometimes it's women who have problems with a spouse who in uh, early 20th century uh, America would have complete power over them in the context of a relationship, and they want to balance that that imbalance in power. They, You have people who are African-American who feel themselves at the wrong end of the Jim, high, uh, Jim Crow hierarchy, and so they go to voodoo to make up for their power imbalance vis-a-vis their white counterparts. Um, and so this kind of thing, the same thing with people who are poor. Um, and so voodoo is able to attract a, a huge cross-section in a very multicultural city like New Orleans. And so it becomes a real reflection of the, the cultural politics here in the city. Um, now, we could do an hour on the next little part of this conversation very easily, and we're going to have to compress it quite a bit. But the other thing that happens eventually is that American popular culture starts telling a story about voodoo, a cartoonified uh, story that doesn't bear much resemblance to the conversation we've been having here for the last 35 minutes. Uh, so as an example of this and a pretty contemporary example of this, listen to the creative director of Universal Studios in Orlando uh, promoting his upcoming voodoo horror attraction, Bayou of Blood. Bayou of Blood, which is uh, from a distance when you're looking down at Central Park, it is a really great vista uh, that you're able to see. Uh, and and we're, it's our first take on voodoo. We've never really tackled that thematic before. And uh, it's usually something we reserve for our Mardi Gras festivals, but, uh, but this year we want to do it at Horror Nights. And uh, I believe on the hour we'll do a human sacrifice up there, you know, like you do. All right, so uh, Professor DeMong, obviously. This is like, I don't know, representing Catholicism, Catholicism exclusively as a pedophilia movement. I mean, the, the, this depiction of this religion as a horror attraction with hourly human sacrifices. I don't know. How did we get to that point? How, how is it possible to take somebody's religion and treat it that way? 
Oh, well, this is a complete distortion of the religion. There is no human sacrifice in Vaudoux, never has been at all. So it's a misconception. But historically, that, that started perhaps in Haiti, and um, it occurred sometime uh, between uh, 18, rather 1914 and 1935. And that would have been the time that um, American uh, troops invaded Haiti, and they occupied the country for, for during that period. And um, there were many, many soldiers, um, American soldiers who were there and uh, in the country and were not, um, did have very little to do. And they dreamt up a lot of things about a lot of ideas and uh, about um, Haitian voodoo. And they had certain opinions. And many of these um, negative notions that they had of this, rel- this religion, uh, they put them in... in um, in various novels that they wrote, and many of these novels ended up in New York and were turned into films. So this is all part of the imagination uh, that has uh, gone on for all of this time, and it became popular among whites in the United States and and other whites in other parts of the world. But there has never been any human sacrifice in in the religion, and there's never been uh, any... um, uh, any cannibalism or anything of the like that or, uh, or voodoo dolls that, or voodoo dolls for that matter there's no such a thing as a voodoo doll there's no such a thing as sticky pins in a voodoo doll to do another person in I mean I've done 30 years of field research in Haiti and I've never seen a voodoo doll uh, that just simply don't exist and I remember doing in my research mentioning this to one of the priests um, on purpose but to see whether whether he knew about it well he had never heard anything about this so um, that simply doesn't exist at all. Cody Roberts, I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, in, in, a, in a world, in, a, in an America that's becoming more religiously pluralized, the efforts of President Trump notwithstanding, uh, and, and maybe more comfortable with different religious traditions, and certainly if you live here in the Northeast and you don't know any Wiccans, you, you don't get out enough. Um, you know, there are people much more comfortable uh, talking about religious practices that they have that aren't strictly within the Judeo-Christian circuit. Um, is, is there a, a way in which, particularly maybe down in the New Orleans area, voodoo is coming back out of the shadows a little bit and becoming something that people can feel more comfortable talking about? Yeah, I think so. Uh, There are a lot of practitioners in the city who are very visible. They hold cultural festivals uh, around uh, All Hallows' Eve um, that are very visible out in the street, and they invite anybody, uh, passerbys, to participate. People in a very tourist area like the New Orleans French Quarter um, and they're very, they're very excited to let people know what they're doing and know what, how they got involved and introduce folks to the religion in the most positive way possible. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with uh, kind of the way we feel about other cultures now in the U.S. as opposed to demonizing uh, uh, African-American cultural traditions we've, or what are viewed as African-American cultural traditions we've had. Uh, a renaissance in the U.S., right, where people uh, of African descent first start to value, re, uh, reevaluate and value their own culture and their connections to other places in the African diaspora. And then that kind of cultural pride uh, past your, your Marcus Garvey's in the early 20th centuries and your, your black power movement in the late 20th century, where people start to value blackness, then it becomes... Uh, as African-Americans start to value it, 
other folks start to value it once they see it treated with respect and treated uh, as something that uh, uh, marks a contribution to the kind of cultural tapestry that is the U.S. And so uh, you have all kinds of people now embracing voodoo who you might not traditionally associate with the religion. Uh, There's a cultural center here in the city run by a local white priestess who was initiated uh, by a, a, a Haitian mambo, and she's been practicing the religion in one form or another for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, Cody Roberts, we have to stop. Uh, I could talk about this for a lot longer. Uh, the book uh, is Voodoo and Power, the Politics of Religion uh, in New Orleans, uh, 1881 to 1940. Uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, Professor DeMong will stay with me. Uh, we will come back. We will talk about Santeria, a, a cousin, I think it's fair to say, of everything we've been talking about so far. I tried voodoo for a while, but at $15 a session, it was getting really expensive, and I found a lot of the other women in my classes were really competitive. Wait, I may have voodoo and yoga mixed up in my mind. Today's show is produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Amanda Fish and our interns Evan Sobel and Ashley Taylor. The part of Bill Curry was played by Clarence Williams III. On tomorrow's show, a tribute to sucking up. And now... Back to Colin. All right. So uh, we've been talking about voodoo for the last uh, 45 minutes or so. We're going to talk about, and none of us here, even Professor DeMangla, uh, is necessarily uh, a reigning expert in the world of Santeria, but we can talk about how it's uh, depicted uh, both in culture and in the news. Uh, And uh, Katie Zvadsky, uh, reporter for the Daily Beast uh, and a contributor to Politico and New York Magazine and BuzzFeed, uh, has also joined us for that. But before we get to Katie, um, Professor DeMongli, you and I have both lived in uh, Hartford for a really long time, worked in Hartford for a really long time. You work at Trinity, uh, which is uh, part of the Frog Hollow neighborhood, for as long as I've been in Hartford, which is you know, my whole life pretty much, but certainly starting when I got out of college in the 1970s, I drive up and down Park Street and I'd see uh, things like Botanica Chango and stuff like that. And I would realize just because of the courses that I took in college. Oh, that that's probably connected somehow to Santeria. People think about Santeria, again, as like the movies is depicted it as like even worse than voodoo <laughs> or something like that and, and all kinds of ripped apart animals. Santeria is like another one of these very kind of daily problem-solving uh, religious practices. Yeah, and it's uh, it's really a cousin to voodoo, actually, because they, the situation that brought the rise on Santeria is not that different from... Uh, the situation that brought in uh, the rise of uh, of voodoo. Uh, the fact that it's Santeria is really a, just as voodoo is a syncretism uh, of Roman Catholicism and African tradition. The main difference really is that uh, the sources or the origins of both religions uh, happen to be different. I mean, uh, Santeria is essentially coming from Yoruba tradition in Nigeria, Whereas uh, the voodoo is coming from Benin and Congo and mm-hmm. other such places, and some in Nigeria, but mostly from Benin and Congo. So that would make a big difference, and therefore the religions, the theologies would be different. Um, as the Africans came from different uh, parts of Africa, they brought in their religions with them, which was then intermixed with Roman Catholicism, and the result was different than either side, the Santeria and, and voodoo. 
But Santeria is a very, very vibrant religion in the city of Hartford. Um, and the reason is because uh, there's a large uh, Cuban and Puerto Rican community and some Dominicans as well in the city um, who practices religions. Now, those um, botanicas that you speak about actually sell various kinds of ritual uh, paraphernalia mm. that people can use either in their homes or even in the temples um, to um, soothe their fears, so to uh, allay their uh, their stress, uh, and 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 so on. Um, but these, so most of these involve particular kinds of candles and things that they will use uh, specifically on their persons in order to uh, bring about certain desired results. Right. So, Katie, um, first of all, thanks for joining us. Um, and this, I mean, I think for the public, they find out, they hear about Santeria two ways. One of them is there'll be some episode of Law and Order or something where something really horrible has happened. Or they're watching television news and, and the police will say, oh, well, we think this is this person we just arrested is involved in Santeria, right? Right. So that's actually exactly what happened in Hartford about two years ago when the police arrested a man who they thought had stolen bones from a cemetery in Massachusetts. Um, and they said that he was a Santeria practitioner and that it was like voodoo, but worse. Right. And and this has also uh, happened uh, in, in Bridgeport as well. I guess it's sort of an argument, Katie, in a way, for police having maybe some religious training, maybe doing some seminars with uh, Professor DeMangle. Absolutely. You know, I, I think the way in which we talk about religion in America is often very binary, very simplistic, and... Um, these kinds of syncretic religions like Santeria, like Palo Monte, like like Voodoo, they really don't fit in as clearly as Judaism or Christianity. And understanding what the rituals mean is really a taller order for police. Right. And, you know, I mean, just to back to you, Professor DeMongo, for a second. This is something we talked about a little bit earlier in the show, but it's worth emphasizing. You know, and, and we could throw Espiritismo in here, too, which is sort of a Puerto Rican uh, variant uh, of some of the same stuff that we're talking about. One thing that you said earlier in the show, but, but it's worth mentioning again, particularly in connection with places we live, is these religions adapt themselves very well to their communities. So Santeria in Hartford probably exists in a way that sort of fits the needs of the enclaves that it's serving. Yes, but uh, not only that it would do that in, in, um, uh, in Hartford, but in various parts of the city, you would find, for example, that the religion would be very malleable and that it would take a different form from one part of the city to the other. And people who actually belong to one temple can very easily go into another temple. And the attitude is, well, this is their way of doing it, and our way of doing it is different. Um, there may not be that much difference or that many differences between them, but there are different uh, differences uh, nevertheless. Katie, it also seems as though, I don't know, certain defendants seem to be trying to get themselves out of trouble. People who've broken in to crypts in Worcester or something and taken human remains, when they get caught, they go, oh, well, I do Santeria. Right. Both of these things can be true. <laughs> you know, uh, being a member of a certain religious group doesn't preclude any of us from also being a criminal. I, I think the question here is, um, 
are these human remains being used in religious rituals? And is that really the best way to obtain the human remains that you're going to use for a religious ritual? And actually, what I my understanding is that many practitioners, not so much in Santeria, because Santeria does not, in fact, actually often use human remains, but practitioners of Afro-Cuban religions like Paolo Monte, um, what they will sometimes do is they will procure human remains from medical supply companies. And in that sense, you're not breaking into someone's crypt. You're not um, disrespecting another person's ancestors by uh, disturbing their resting place. However, you're procuring what you need in a legal way, and you're able to get what you need. The trouble with that, however, is that experts will say that usually, traditionally, practitioners of these religions would want to have some kind of connection to the person whose uh, bones they're using, to the person whose spirit you're calling upon. And when you're procuring bones from a medical supply company, that's unfortunately not possible. Right. And I think the other part of this, we're just, we got a minute left, but Professor DeMangla, the, the, the television and movie and media uh, prejudice is this kind of notion that these, all of these things will be used for dark and evil purposes as opposed to benign purposes. Um, and that, that these religions, to the extent that it's possible to generalize them, you know, there are people out in the woods waving live chickens around and decapitating them for evil means. The more that I know about voodoo and Santeria, the more I think, you no, know, these are actually the more kind of daily, I don't know, just the stuff of life religions. You know, you have a cold that won't go away. You have problems with the man in your life or something. I mean, these are religions that kind of address that kind of stuff very well. Yeah, they're very practical because they, these religions deal with practical issues of life. But, you know, to think that these religions, people who practice these religions or, uh, go to cemetery and just dig up any grave is completely wrong. I mean, these people are not grave robbers. Mm -hmm. So it's a misconception and a distortion of the whole thing. But let me say something, since you mentioned chicken, um, chicken sacrifices. I, I, you know, the sacrifices are done. Why? Because um, you kill an animal because you're offering to the spirit the dearest thing that you can give to the mm -hmm. spirit. And the second thing is the no part of the animal is actually wasted. It's all consumed. We're going to have to stop there. I think we have a little uh, Santeria-type music uh, that I'm hearing in the background here. That means the show's over. We're so lucky to have Professor Leslie DeMong from Trinity College with us, author of The Faces of the Gods, Voodoo and Roman Catholicism in Haiti. 